BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I've been tracking Sasquatches for 25 years. Part my American global awakening to the new world order. Part my American artificial intelligence. Part my American. Do you believe in UFOs? Yes, sir. Extraterrestrial. You're listening to Pardon My American. Ah, well, good morning, everyone. Yes, hello, hello, hello. Right and early. This is not normal. I mean, we've done this, but hey. You know, we're getting used to it. I got to get myself all energized. <laughs> you I got the it. sleepy eyes? Well, you know, listen, I had a late night yesterday, yeah. and then I woke up uh, after my wife. She went and got me coffee. Oh, nice. Yeah. Bless her soul. I tell you what. Yep. I saw her when she came in. I'm like, oh, that must be I for I slept Dave. good, though. We had our two oldest kids. They were out of the house. They stayed at the grandparents' house, Ooh. so it was like a quiet night. Dango. Not bad, dude. I'm not gonna <laughs> haven't had one of those in a while. Anyways, guys, make sure you go check us out, partofamerican.com. We got lots of merchandise, lots of cool stuff that we put out every single other week, maybe. I don't know. We got some new stuff on there, yeah. new stuff coming. Uh, Patreon members, thank you so much for the support. Absolutely. Keep this uh, show going. Yeah, and, any way you guys support our show, we love it, and it, it yeah. goes a mile. You know yeah, and I mean? if you have not subscribed to this channel and you're new to the channel, please go ahead and hit that uh, notification bell and subscribe. Heck yes. Yeah, but we got a guest today, bro. Yes. Super excited about Yeah, so joining us today is a former counterintelligence analyst slash strategic military intelligence analyst, war veteran, and also a published author. Yes. Uh, Matthew Reed. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. How you doing? Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing outstanding. Right on. So yeah, I mean, I know you've uh, you've reached out, and we we've uh, been excited to talk to you. We've just started taking guests back on because we're kind of going through some moves and stuff. So I'm glad to have you here. And there's lots of questions we have for you now. You have a lot of stuff you want to talk about, like war stuff. I mean, there's. I, I think we might even get a little deep with you on some aliens, man. I don't oh know heck you know yeah! <laughs> the UFO topic is coming. So happy to give you guys some illumination on that as well. Right on. So how many years did you spend in the uh, military and then also in the counterintelligence? So I did my first four years in the U.S. Marine Corps, 2003 to 2007. Um, I got out. One of my regrets actually was that I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I wound up working as a doorman at a couple of topless strip clubs in Houston. Then I went back into the military. This time I went to the Army. Uh, I became an interrogator and a Category 2 source handler. And did three and a half years in the Army, a couple deployments, Iraq and Afghanistan. And then when I got out of the Army in 2012, I went to become a DOD intelligence contractor. 
starting off for a company called Mission Essential Personnel. I spent my first few years as a contractor in Afghanistan, uh, the last two years of which I was working on a strategic clandestine intelligence collection platform. Oh boy. It was the type of organization where our operating authorities were approved by people who had to be elected to office. I'll probably have to not go into too much more detail than that. Sure. And I left that platform at the end of 2015, and I went to work as a counterintelligence analyst in the Balkans region of Europe for uh, U.S. Army Europe and U.S. European Command, also working alongside NATO. And my job as a counterintelligence analyst, which I've had since uh, until I left a few months ago, I've been doing that for almost six years. And my job there was to prevent hostile foreign intelligence services like the Russians from penetrating our human intelligence source pool and also working with actual counterintelligence agents to root out what are called double agents, people we thought are working for us that were flipped on us by, for example, the Russians. And my job was to find out who those people were, root them out, neutralize them, get them out of our intelligence chain and stop them from doing damage. Long story short, I got a few scalps on my belt. And then as we began drawing down our strength in Europe, Eastern Europe and the Balkans region in particular, uh, my position got cut. So I was sent home. And since I came home, I've been relaxing, doing some hunting with my father, making up for lost time. And uh, working on another book right now and marketing some previous books that I wrote. So that's the story in some. Right on. <clears throat> so hold on, though. So you worked at a couple teddy bars. Were you you were a bouncer? No, sir. I was actually a doorman. OK, yeah. so you took the money. Well, more or less. You know, I didn't get paid that much. OK, OK. <laughs> have you ever seen the movie Con Air with Nicolas Cage? Yes, sir, I have. Where his hands are deadly weapons. That's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing Matt Reed. You know, uh, he's just like, hey, you touch that lady's breast again, you're going to have to deal with these <laughs> deadly forces right here, these hands, you know? So double agents. Like, I know that's something, uh, somebody who's obviously we don't know as much about the ends, like the real, real ends. But, like, that's the stuff you see in movies, man. Like, and you said there you got a couple people, you found a few people that actually were double agents. Yes, sir. So, to give some uh, context for you and your audience as to what a double agent actually is without revealing any tradecraft. Yeah. But before I, before I continue, I do have to say, because I still hold an active security clearance with the U.S. intelligence community, yeah. anything I say does not in any way reflect the policy or views of the U.S. government or the U.S. Department of Defense. I just got to say that. Right? Sure. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, you okay. don't have to go into details that you don't have to go into. We, you know, but, we're just uh, more curious. So, for example, what a double agent is. Okay, <clears throat> so let's say I'm a U.S. intelligence officer. I'm a case officer, or what we call a sourceman. Okay, job of that handler is to find, assess, and recruit people who have access to information we need to inform policymakers or inform military commanders and kind of schmooze, get to know, and more or less, quote, recruit that person to spy for the U.S. intelligence. Okay? Mm. So let's say, Dave, let's say you're the guy I recruit. 
Yep. Okay, because you're say a Russian GRU captain or whatever, you have access to information we need, whether I do it through blackmail, bribery, or because you just hate your bosses in Moscow, let's say you've decided to work for me. Okay. And you're giving me information on, say, uh, Russian intelligence operations or maybe Russian missiles, something like that, like the Sunburn cruise missile, for example. If I was, you know, trying to get something, I might try to get that. And then let's say that Greg is a Russian military counterintelligence officer. He finds out what you're doing. He comes to you and says, hey, comrade. I go, David, how would you like to work for Mother Russia? Yes? Yes, yes? No, you, you know. Something like, okay, comrade, if you don't want to get a bullet in the back of the head or have your family consigned to a labor camp in Siberia, here's what you're going to do. You're going to start giving misinformation mm. to that American you're working for. And then he starts feeding me information that will have a little bit of truth and some falsities mixed in it designed to screw up our intelligence collection and analysis process. <clears throat> and if that goes on long enough, some real damage can be done. Yeah. So yeah. What you, what you employ to stop that from happening, a unit that's really squared away and takes the security seriously will have at least one good counterintelligence analyst whose job is to assess how their meetings go with that source we've recruited and talk with the source handler and look for indicators that they've been compromised. Maybe you tell them to do something and they do the exact opposite. And we, we have ways of checking up on this. We can use other sources to look at them. I mean, spy on through other means to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. And then we find out, hey, we're seeing Dave after meeting with you, meeting with Greg Plekov or whatever, and Comrade Plekov is a Russian GRU colonel, and we know him as a counterintelligence officer, and that's how they, quote, double you back against me, yeah, or against you. the source hand. My job was to identify when that was going on and stop it from happening and neutralize that individual to make sure that they were, you know, not going to be used by the intelligence community. Yeah, I have to imagine that's like extremely difficult. I mean, I know obviously there's going to be ways and the government has ways to do it, but that would be so hard for me to try to even figure out, like, is this person giving us the wrong information? Are they giving us the right information? Yeah. I mean, that has to be depthy stuff that you're doing. Well, it's it's not super easy, but if you're, if you're trained in tradecraft, if you're an experienced interrogator source handler, and you've worked for a number of years overseas on higher-level platforms like I did, where I was mentored by some of the most impressive people in the U.S. intelligence community, uh, guys who in the early 80s were running counterintelligence ops against the East German Stasi. Uh, I worked with some of those guys. The older men mentored me very patiently and taught me a lot. You understand tradecraft, and then you understand how your particular hostile intel service you're targeting works, what their tactics, techniques, and procedures are. And you're able to get information from that source handler of everything that happened in the meeting. Yep. You do that consistently and you know what to look for. <clears throat> Even if they have a handler who's really, really good. Some of these guys are pretty good. Yep. No matter who that source is, they will inevitably screw up and slip up 
You just got to know what to look for to find it. Yeah. So the interrogation you brought up, I mean, have you, you've done a lot of interrogations before? I've done a few. Okay. And I imagine it's not like the first 48, right? Where it's just like a, this nice conversation in a, in a little room with some uh, McDonald's. Yeah, right? good it's, cop, bad cop. <laughs> you got these all these methods. Uh, it's, it's in our line of work on the intelligence side. I'm always speaking for military intelligence. I can't yeah. speak for people in three-letter agencies who are working at black sites. Yeah. For those of us on the military intelligence side, it's much more complex and nuanced. Yeah. You know, it's not always, it's not going to be something like you go in there and you rip out the guy's fingernails. It, it doesn't work. So when I was an interrogator, uh, that was in 2009 when I was deployed to Diyala province, Iraq. I was assigned to the 184th Military Intelligence Company from the 1st of the 25th Striker Brigade. We were based out of Fort Wayne, Ryder. So we go to interrogate these guys. The longest interrogation I did was about seven hours and 45 minutes. Whew. That was against one of the top insurgent leaders in northeastern Iraq, a guy we've been looking for for years. And one of our CAV squadron units actually caught the guy by accident when they busted up on some other guys making some keys. Yeah. But it's more complicated than a lot of people think. Um, do you so get more? Do you get a lot of information, though, out of it? Or do they tend to, in that region, are they pretty like, you know, tight lipped on their stuff? It's all over the ballpark. Okay. So we had guys come in that we thought were just hardcore badasses, battle-hardened guys, and we go in there thinking we have to do what we call a fear up harsh. And the second we get a little verbally harsh with them, they piss their pants and their dish doshes, and they start crying. Oh. Mm. Posers. That would be me. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, Mommy. (laughs) Yeah. We, We actually had a guy cry for his mother. Oh, no joke. Yeah. Uh, And then we had other guys who we weren't sure about. We had them in there for months and we never broke. Yeah. Dang. So what are the some what are some of the best interrogation methods and what are some of the worst interrogation methods? That 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 varies. It varies by the individual, by the mission. Sometimes it varies by culture and nation. Right. So, for example, if you're interrogating someone who's really, really old, and we're talking like an old guy with a white beard, yeah. all right, there are certain human tendencies that do tend to cross cultural and geographic boundaries. You'll, this is something you got to learn. As They don't teach you this at the interrogation school at Huachuca. This is something you have, you have to learn. Okay. So one of those cultural tendencies that crosses cultures and geography is that really old men tend to have an innate desire to want to impart some form of lessons, you know, life lessons or wisdom to a younger man. So if your interrogation subject is an old man and you're a much younger guy, and I was, you know, much, much younger guy then my early thirties, mm-hmm. sit down with that man. Don't get me act very humble. Okay. And you can elicit information off of them that initially may sound completely useless, but when you plug it in with the other bits of information you've got, you know, yeah. kind of like completes the circuit and completes the puzzle. So, for example, you sit down in front of an old guy and you say, you know, Mohammed, I can see you're an older man. You've been around a long time. 
There's a lot I don't understand about this area, whether it's Diablo, Baghdad, whatever. I see a lot of things that don't make sense. Okay. I see a lot of sheep herders stacking rocks on the side of the road. I'm just using this as an example. This, yeah. was, this wasn't me that did this. Yeah. But stacking rocks from the side of the road. And Mohammed, <clears throat> that just puzzles me. I mean, I don't understand your livelihood and your culture. Why do you guys do that? And then Mohammed says, oh, Mr. Scott, for example, or, you know, Mr. Tom, that's how we mark where IEDs are placed so we don't get blown up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which directly and, helps you. And then the interrogator goes back and says to the commander, sir, they pull in the infantry commanders, the spec ops units that you might be attached to, said, hey, this is how they're marking their IEDs. Here's what we need to look for. Then every time you see those things, you call it in, EOD rolls out. We disarm the IED, and we take those IEDs back to base and have our explosive ordnance disposal specialists maybe start pulling those live ones apart. Yeah. We say, okay, how are they putting these together? Oh, wow. That telex wire is from Iran. Yeah. And so something as simple as that can make a hell of a difference. Yeah. And when you're not in the military, like, you know, it's like a, it's like any like a game or something, you know, it's like you, you can watch football or something and you kind of get the whole thing, but there's like a strategy that's oh, yeah. kind of like underneath that the coaches are doing that the, yeah, it's a game of chess, bro. And that's, it's a lot like what you're saying. It's like, there's so much backdoor things that people on the daily basis don't really realize is going on and how we figure out the things that we do. And it's like, yeah, I remember, you know, with uh, Saddam Hussein was found, you know, in it's like, hole. how in the heck do you find a guy in a hole in this giant dust yeah. field? And it's through things like this, I would imagine, right? We're just small intelligence coming in and you're starting to piece things together. I mean, it's it's pretty wild, man. It, sometimes it gets pretty crazy. What was uh, your, um of all the things that you've done, like what was the most exciting thing for you as far as like, what did you enjoy the most? Um, was it finding new information, being able to, you know, tell others that you got new information or was there a certain kind of uh, thing that you did on a daily basis that you love to do? Or was it the whole thing? I was kind of the whole thing. Yeah. So you're, you're working in the intelligence community and when you're in the intelligence community, civilian or military, military, especially, it's kind of a unique profession, even though it involves a lot of different jobs. And on top of being in the military, you're also in kind of a semi-elite group within the government. You've got the clearances. You know a lot of secrets. And while that is pretty cruel in some ways, there are a lot of secrets that you have to keep. And sometimes it is a burden with the things you know, having to constantly keep your mouth shut. You know, hearing people talk about things, you're like, Oh, dude, you have no idea how wrong you are. How yeah. You yeah. That's the stuff I, I wish I, I knew. Can, I can only imagine that would be one of the harder things to do is to, when you know information and you hear people talking, like even if it's your friends and they're they're saying certain things and you're just like in your head, you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, I could shut you up within two sentences, but I would uh, I'd probably be killed or something. <laughs> you know, I'd be put in prison. Or well, something. on top of that, you actually like are seeing news coming out. And articles and, and social media and people talking about these topics, which you may have some knowledge about, and you can't even correct where it's wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like that would that would be hard. Well, that's the uh, that's the discipline you get. There's a lot of privileges that go with those clearances and those intelligence community jobs and positions. 
but there's a tremendous amount of burden and more tremendous responsibility that come with it. Yeah. Um, of all the places that I know you were kind of regional, if I'm not mistaken, what you said, um, from your, either your friends, yourself, like what areas do you see in this, in this world that happen to be probably the most corrupt, you know, as far as like government issues, like what corruption are you seeing that you're like, this place is gnarly, man. Like there's a lot of stuff going behind the scenes here or is it all over? By far the most corrupt country I've been to and the worst corruption I've seen, bar none, Afghanistan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that Uh, is? Oh, God. It seems tribal to me. The corruption there is so endemic that I almost started to think it was hardwired into the country's DNA. But one of the primary causes of that has to do with the way that their culture and their people have evolved based on not just culture, but geography. So Afghanistan is an extremely fractious tribal culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. For the most part, there is no such thing as Afghanistan, the minds of the people. Right. Yeah. So they're a ultra tribal culture. And those tribes are broken down from ethnicities to tribes, to clans, kills, and then individual families. And in Afghan culture, especially the Pashtun, which are the dominant, the dominant largest ethnicity in the subculture. How best, how, I, how best I can explain this without overcomplicating it, but yeah, it's all good. In their mentality, the family and the tribe always first. That has been the way they fought going back four or five thousand years. That was the problem Cyrus the Great of Persia had to confront. That was the problem Alexander the Great of Macedonia had to confront. Eventually, he had to say, screw it and leave. Although he he understood Afghanistan better than any other occupier, probably came closer than anybody else to subduing it, but I, I digress. But that, that ultra-fractious tribal culture where all Afghans see is their family and their tribe. Mm. Okay, Because the family and the tribe is like a wound that protects you, male or female. The women are no different. Okay, we went in there thinking the women are just these poor, sweet, oppressed things and need us to liberate them from this tribal culture. Doesn't work that way. They are every bit as fiercely and emotionally loyal to their family and tribe as the men are, mm-hmm. as we often found out much to our chagrin. Yeah. So when they go into positions in government, okay, there's no national level mentality, no nationalist mentality no nationalist patriotic mentality that as bad as some of our issues are most people still feel some semblance of loyalty to the country even in the more corrupt elements of our government they still have that in their mind as bad as it may get not the way it is in afghanistan when these guys become governors they win elections they go into the civil service the afghan military the afghan intel services we set up They go in there with the sole objective not to serve country, not to do what's best for the nation of Afghanistan, but only what is best for their family and their respective tribe. Mm. Lahami Karzai, okay? His clan, his tribe, I believe it's the Alikazai tribe, but I'm not sure. He staffs the government with just people from his tribe because, again, the family and the tribe 
first. So it essentially becomes an oligarchy, pretty much, right? In a lot of ways, yes. And if you become one of the oligarchs, it is innate in your nature to want to use that position to do things that only help your family and your tribe. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Is that... <clears throat> What does that do with like the grudge factor? Like as far as if you kill one of their family members, they're going to kill 10 of your family members. You know, that kind of not just eye for an eye, but it's going to be eye for a leg or eye for like a whole body or half your body or something. You know what I mean? Where they go above and beyond, they they will just, just want to destroy everything you have because you killed one of their family members. So that that is an integral part of Afghan culture. It falls under what some call Pashtun Wali, the, you know, the Afghan code of honor, which has advantages and disadvantages. But that grudge game, I mean, we're talking about something that goes back thousands of years and predates the ancient Macedonians going through with Alexander. Now, imagine you're trying to sort this out as an intelligence analyst with an army striker brigade or Marine Corps infantry battalion, okay? You're some young kid, young E5, young E6, or young second lieutenant, and then you got these different tribes you got to somehow deal with. And if you help out one, the other one sees you as the enemy Mm -hmm. because 4,000 years ago, that dude's ancestors, you know, shot one of your relatives or killed one of your goats. Yep. And you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Now, imagine being a young second first lieutenant or a young corporal specialist, E5, E6, trying to sort this out. And how do you know the history of each family and each tribe going back three, four, five thousand years? And then Uncle Sam sends you out there and says, hey, we want to do this counterinsurgency strategy. We want you to win all their hearts and minds. You young guys go figure this out. Thing goes wrong. It's all your fault. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. That's like possible. the uh, Hatfield McCoys. It's like it's deep well, yeah. rooted shit that you are not yeah. going to get. Yeah. You're not going to get like done yourself. Never forget, never forgive type thing. Yeah. yeah. Or even just bloods and crypts. I mean, how would you do that here in the United States? You know, hey, go uh, go solve that crime down in, you know, yeah. East L.A. or something. Um, I mean, when you said Afghanistan, it makes sense because like that's that's what I, I mean. My understanding of it, it's like it is very tribal and it's how do you handle that when you have so many different groups who want the power? I mean, that would be like each state. Like California putting all California people in just to support California in the States, you know, which would be terrible, you know. Yeah, so it's there's a really good book you can read that actually illuminates this very well. It's actually a fictional book written by a guy named Stephen Pressfield. The book is called The Afghan Campaign. Now, Pressfield also wrote the famous book Gates of Fire about the battle of Thermopylae, focused on the Spartans. Mm -hmm. He also recently wrote a book about the uh, Roman Empire in Judea called A Man at Arms, great writer. But the Afghan campaign, while it's written, it's fictional, he does a very good job of writing it from the point of view of a young Macedonian grunt who's gone to fight Alexander's army after they've conquered Persia, and now they're occupying Afghanistan. And Alexander, because of how brilliant he was, he made a very accurate, cold, logical, rational analysis what it was he was dealing with in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So the tribal code back then, I think it was called Ashura, something to that effect. I don't know if that's pronouncing it right. Something. And so what Alexander did, he recognized how fractious and tribal it was. So 
But what does Alexander do? He does something pretty smart. He encourages all of his soldiers to marry Afghan women from the different clans, Kells, families, and tribes, right? Because he knows they won't kill a member of their own family. And that does sort of tamp things down for a while. And Alexander, as he's got to fight this guy, I think his name is Oxyartes, where Alexander defeats him and drives him off, he takes Oxyartes' daughter, Roxanne, and rather than just use her as a hostage, he marries her. Mm-hmm. Now Alexander's rival is now a relative, and he can't kill a family member. And he thought he had it in the bag. When we read the Afghan campaign, what happens is almost all at once, all the different tribes seem to have this unspoken agreement. They have to stop this. They start butchering their daughters and sisters who have married the Macedonians all in a relatively short amount of time, which then, of course, results in Alexander having to engage in, you know, try to engage in mass genocide, basically, to try to keep it all pinned down. When you read that book, it really gives you a good window into how complex and, you know, difficult that fractious tribal culture is when you try to occupy it and manage it. And just like Alexander, just like the British, just like the Mongols under Genghis Khan, just like the Russians, we eventually gave up and left. That's like the whole Middle East, though, right? I mean, in a sense, like, you know, from a perspective, like an average citizen, they feel like the Middle East is just this, like, you're not fixing this. You know what I'm saying? Like, we keep going and we keep trying with these countries and they're just not, it's not fixable. Yeah. Yeah. As far as, like... How much do you think the United States interferes with the whole paradigm over there? Like, are we instigating this as far as creating more problems than we are solutions? So there's plenty of evidence to suggest that when we tried to allegedly do good in Iraq, we in some ways made things a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. Um, In fact, one of the army intelligence officers I worked for in Afghanistan was one of the men who interrogated Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. And he had some interesting takes on this whole thing. Saddam Hussein more or less said, you have no idea what you've done. Basically said, look, I know you guys thought I was a brutal SOB. I was keeping this thing tamped down. Basically, you guys have, are going to have a knee-length level shit storm that you've just unleashed and we're still seeing that with isis um yeah i don't know how it'll turn out probably the best we'll be able to hope for is a tie and so the the nature of the middle east as we look at it now so look at the middle east borders those borders are really artificial they haven't been around for that long the way the middle east is bordered and divided up now is a result of something called the sykes pico so that was an agreement between the European colonial powers that was made, I believe, post-World War I. They kind of decided after the devastation of World War I, we can't keep these colonies anymore. Screw it. Let's divide it up. And so they created Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, which is now you know, mostly modern-day Israel, Saudi Arabia. And the European diplomats drew those borders up based on what made sense strategically and diplomatically for them. Mm. But if you look at a, a distribution map of the different religions, ethnicities, and tribes, what the Western Europeans inadvertently did with those borders, and Colonel Ralph Peters said this very well, <clears throat> we took people 
who hated each other's guts and we forced them to be pushed together. Okay. Thank the Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Perfect example. And we took people who wanted to be together and we drove them apart. Mm -hmm. And so those people were living that way for thousands of years. And then we just come in and sever that. So why do you think that happened? Was that arbitrary or was it purposeful? The, the, the dividing of cultures, the bringing together the cultures that hated one another. Is it no better? Uh, the European diplomats, I guess I'll describe them as these high-minded, ultra-sophisticated West Europeans. They did what made sense to them. For money or strategy? Uh, probably probably for money, probably for strategy. Not that it worked out all that great for them because in this thing called World War II happened. Yeah. Um, and then you fast forward. To the end of the Second World War, let me let me tie what goes on in the Middle East to some analysis done by Peter Zihan and what I know is a, also a professional. So we get to the end of the Second World War. I mean, it's just devastating. Europe is just obliterated. You've got the Americans and the British on one side, and you've got the god awful Red Army on the other, and. We in the British took a look at the Red Army, the sheer number of casualties that they had endured and sustained, and the ungodly number of people they had killed. And in many ways, Russians are natural-born killers, and that includes a lot of the women. Don't ever have any illusions. Yeah, we've seen a lot of YouTube videos where they just bear wrestle in the uh, in their garage, right? They ride oh, bears yeah. and drink vodka and shit. <laughs> we, we in the British looked at that. And we looked at it logistically, even with our incredible industrial base and logistics system having to go across the Atlantic. We were not really sure we could take on the Red Army. Whatever George S. Patton thought aside, the powers that be, Eisenhower, Marshall, Truman, Churchill, were not sure we could take them on. So we said, okay, we got this big red communist blob blowing up over the map. How do we contain this and stop the cycle of history? Here's what we did, and Peter Zihon discusses this in his lectures very well. We had the Bretton Woods Agreement, the Bretton Woods system. We pulled in all the West European diplomats and leaders and said, look, what caused this war in World War One was the fact that you guys don't have that much in the way of natural resources. Oh. You had to build well, hold on a second here, Matt. We got a little uh, got a little interference. Oh, there, yeah, we, we have a... Uh... A rowdy biker neighbor. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> Go ahead. Excuse Sorry, me. So, we told the Europeans, look, because these wars, what led up to all of it, was you guys having to build your colonial empires and then compete for control of the resources you were drawing from those empires. The most successful of the colonial empires, obviously, was the British for a number of reasons. But that led to them fighting over those empires which eventually culminated in the chain of events that kind of got the chess pieces in place for World War I, then it was set off by the assassination of an archduke in Sarajevo. And we said, look, because we've got this massive navy, our industry's intact, our navy's intact, we're going to use our global navy to secure all the world's shipping lanes so you guys can import raw materials and export finished products and we take care of all the security and overwatch, you won't have to do a damn thing. But as Peter Zihan says, the catch was they all had to be on our side and let us, and maybe to a lesser extent the British, 
tell them what to do militarily and write their security policy for them. Mm. It wasn't like they were in a position to say no, because if they flipped us the bird and said no, all we had to do was go home, and then you can deal with the tender mercies of the Russian Red Army and the KGB and see what that does. Mm. So, as the Europeans weren't stupid, they said, hell yes, where do we sign? And then we create NATO. And let me ask something about the understanding of NATO. It wasn't just to help hold back and contain the Soviets. It was also there, as one British general said, it was there to keep the Americans and the British in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Mm. Because when Germany starts rearming and gets too powerful, bad things tend to happen in Europe. So we kind of stopped that cycle of history. Where the Middle East figures into that is the power or alliance with the Europeans, the Japanese, and the South Koreans, for example. The one thing they had to have a lot of, one thing was oil. And so as Peter Zihon does a very good job of analyzing in his lectures, I recommend anybody watch those. They're very informative. We secured the Persian Gulf. And I went to a group of, group of Bedouins, a group of basically Arab sheep herds we now know as the House of Saud, the Saudis. I said, hey, you're sitting on an ocean of oil. You can make a lot of money exporting it to Europe and a few other places, Europe and Asia. We'll secure it for you. We just want you to export and get rich. That oil helps power the rebuilding of those countries' economies, Japan, South Korea, Western Europe. That allows them to export their way to economic prosperity again, though it took a while. Mm. That also is part of what was involved in the Marshall Plan to help them build back up so they could fund decent militaries and we could have as a, you know, a, uh, a defensive screen in front of the Red Army. Okay. And as Saudi Arabia starts to export, they get really, really rich, really, really quick. And the fact that they don't have to, you know, spend too much money on a Navy to do it because we're doing it for them mm-hmm. means they get even richer. What we fail to understand, what I will, what I personally think we fail to understand, let me caveat that not everybody may agree with this, but we fail to understand the power of religious fanaticism in some of these cultures and how important it really was. We tend to think as Americans, once someone gets something like a democracy or gets a lot of money, religion doesn't matter anymore. Culture doesn't matter. Nothing matters because everyone likes democracy and money. Well, that might be how we think of it. But as I've learned from the school of hard knocks in the Middle East and, yes, even the Balkans, there are large swaths of the world's population that really don't care all that much about money and things like blood, religion, tribe, or relation with God matter a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. We fail to understand that dynamic in the Middle East, especially as it relates to Saudi Arabia. So what do the Saudis do when they start getting rich? And know they've got a large population that's very restive. They try to keep them fat, dumb, and happy, basically make them fat and lazy so they won't rise up against you and kill you. Hmm. But they have swaths of their population that are also religious fanatics. How do they keep them placated? They use their money to push Wahhabism, radical political Islam, throughout the Middle East, 
in places like universities in Egypt that are very influential in Middle Eastern thought and you know, have been for over a thousand years. And they stopped the Middle East from going through what might have been a potential renaissance. And they start funding fanaticism. They push people off against the Israelis. Of course, the Israelis hit back. Yeah. And you start getting, you know, Arab Sunni terrorism exported throughout the world, partially as a result. Yeah. That was a major mistake on our part. Now, it did benefit us near the end of the Cold War. So we go to the 1980s, all right? We were determined to teach the Russians a lesson because in the 1970s, we were trying to do what the French did and have a crash program to go to overwhelmingly just nuclear power. As far as energy and electricity, we wanted to get off oil and go to nuclear power, right? And the French were actually very successful for a reason I'll discuss in a minute if you want me to, but we were not. There was a massive political movement in the United States. It was the anti-nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A big chunk of that movement was funded and fanned through proxy by the Russian intelligence service. Well, wasn't it also the oil companies too, like Halliburton and, you know. Sure. They, the oil companies had some stuff to do with it. Now, it's kind of murky. What I can't figure out is we know the Russians had a lot of sleeper agents in the U.S. And a lot of the U.S. citizens that were in that nuclear anti-nuclear energy movement may very well have been Russian illegals who had already gotten U.S. citizenship, kind of like that show The Americans. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. And did anybody in the oil companies knowingly work with people behind the scenes they knew were Russian agents or just work with people they thought were honest Americans because they had a common interest? I'm not sure. Hmm. But they were successful. Boy, did it do a number on us. And so we realized what had happened. And so then we had the election of President Ronald Reagan brings in what would be one of the last great administrations of the World War II generation. And so they sit down and said, okay, we need to bring these guys to their knees. We're going to teach them a lesson. So one of the things that the Reagan administration did in conjunction with the Star Wars program and the massive conventional military buildup we did, which the purpose of the conventional military buildup in the early 80s and throughout the mid-80s was basically to say, look, we may have to fight these guys. We've got to be able to defeat them in Europe conventionally so we don't have to go to nukes. Okay, pretty straightforward. Yeah. The other thing they did, long story short, we provided more security to the House of Saud in exchange for them helping us crash world oil prices. So what does that do? Helps our economy out, helps out the Europeans, but here's the thing. It cripples the Russians. One of the reasons the Russians did that big operation in Western Europe and the U.S. to shut down the transition to nuclear energy is because it would have been a crippling blow to them because the only export they could actually make money off of oil. was Russian oil and gas. Mm. Okay. And so we crashed oil prices and did do a number on the Russians. So let me ask and you this. Do you think that uh... – Chernobyl had anything to do with them? Like, was Chernobyl like this big accident or was it purposeful to basically dissuade their economy from going to nuclear? You know, because when when people think nuclear, they think Chernobyl, they think 
nuclear waste. They get kind of scared. You know what I mean? It's like this scary topic. But meanwhile, there's so many studies that say that nuclear power is, is so far is, is super or superior, yeah. right? To oil. So if you look at the data, even, even if you take into account deaths from like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Chernobyl, nuclear stuff has still killed fewer people than almost every other source of energy, you know, in totality. Mm-hmm. So Chernobyl happened after the Russians had run that operation and more or less shut it down. Okay. Most likely it was an accident because the Russian KGB, it looks like, had censored some information about how you run graphite reactors with graphite tips, something to that effect. That did come out in an investigation that was presented to Gorbachev, though they obviously kept that quiet. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I think Chernobyl was most likely what it, what, it, what it was, an accident as a result of just the Russians being boneheaded and careless. That they hmm. yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I, I've always questioned why we haven't got more nuclear. You know, and I think yeah. I think to what you were saying, there's a lot of people who don't understand it and yep. they get freaked out by the idea of nuclear bombs. Crap, we have a nuclear plant, you know, and we had a, I believe, a nuclear plant over yeah. here about 20 minutes away from us that they tore down, oh, yeah, blew Trojan. up yeah. freaking 25 years ago. But, you know, it's just like why I just don't understand why the energy was never put in play or was it because of the propaganda that was coming out about it? A lot of it was because of the propaganda. And the thing I have to point out to people when they think of nuclear energy, a lot of those big nuclear power plants, like the one you guys saw getting torn down, mm. a lot of that is based on like 1940s, 1950s technology. Yeah. Yeah. Had, I have to remind people, since the late 1950s, we've had these things called nuclear-powered submarines. Yeah. Ooh. Right? Yep. Mm. But, but, but that nuclear technology we put on our submarines and our naval vessels, was all highly classified, so it couldn't really be shared and put out into the private sector. So we've had that technology actually for a long time. We've had the technology to build small mobile reactors for decades. We just didn't put it into place. Now that is changing. Uh, the Department of Energy, the U.S. Intelligence Community, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are taking a lot of those newer, te- newer nuclear technologies and pushing them out. We've already got small modular nuclear reactor technology that is just incredible. Even the former head of Greenpeace, Michael Schellenberger, I believe, is endorsing it. Mm-hmm. And you can, well, you, you can plug and play. You can do one. You can tie a bunch of them together. They're easy to transport, easy to secure, easy to make safe. Their technology is extremely safe. Yeah. And that's being approved through licensing. The U.S. DOD has got a bunch of programs under now testing and building mobile nuclear reactors for military units. And part of what got this sped up was uh, Jim Mattis pushing as defense secretary because if you look at it from a logistics standpoint, if you have mobile nuclear reactors, you don't have to constantly have these massive supply lines that require fossil fuels. That is a tremendous military advantage that is blatantly obvious to the DOD. So they're they're pushing ahead with it. Westinghouse has some programs. There's Project Pele, which is going on right now, should be finished soon. So if we wanted to go to nuclear to solve these problems, we could start doing it like that tomorrow if we really wanted to. And okay. then on top of that, here's something else interesting. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show and talk to you about our sponsors. Aura. Mm. The way we use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. 
Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and devices, and much more, all in one easy-to-use app. Yeah, with Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, they offer a $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover those stolen funds. And you get an experienced crew that help you out. Hell yeah. And it's easy to use, easy to set up, and the dashboard is elegant. elegant, elegant. Right? So elegant. Yes. For a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial when you visit Aura.com slash pardon. Go to Aura.com slash pardon to get complete protection, huge savings, and a 30-day free trial. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A dot com slash pardon. Guys, Aura is the new standard in digital security. It is worth having in your back pocket. Hell yes. We all have it. We love it. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Mm-hmm. And protect your health. Right? Try to. Quitting smoking sucks. Right? The it cold does. turkey method. It's not going to cut it. Yeah. That's why you got to check out tools such as Fume. They can help you out. Yeah, Fume is a natural inhaler designed for a better, safer, and natural way to quit cigarettes. It's a no-smoke, no-vape, no-nicotine replacement for the hand-to-mouth habit of smoking. Mm-mm-mm. Fume handcrafts wooden inhalers that use cores that are infused with plant oils that are studied to curb your cravings. They have flavors like peppermint and conquer with minty notes that simulate menthol cigarettes. And they also have other flavors like Cozy Chai and Lemon Berry Bliss for that sweeter experience. Yeah, all those flavors, 100% natural. No harmful chemicals, no artificial flavors, and absolutely no nicotine. We know that quitting is tough, but Fume can really help. And guys, there are thousands upon thousands of five-star reviews where this worked for people that had no other option. Hell yeah, many people are using it, and they are blown away with how much it has helped with their cravings. Whether you are a smoker or an ex-smoker who still struggles with those cravings, Fume is the perfect tool for you. Head to breathefume.com slash pardon and use the promo code PARDON to save 10% off of your entire order. Yeah, that is B-R-E-A-T-H-E-F-U-M dot com backslash pardon. Use the promo code PARDON. 10% off your entire purchase and maybe 10% off your life. You know, or 10% added to your life. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And not off your life. life. This will help save your life. Do it, people. It'll help you out. It's good stuff, man. Back in 2014, the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works made a very unusually rare public announcement of something they call a CFR, the Compact Fusion Reactor. Mm. Okay, right. here we go. Is this getting into UFOs? I hope so. <laughs> we, can, we can go there if you want. Oh, yes, yeah. we want to go there. So they said that they would have this thing being built for marketing it about 10 years from the date they released that announcement, which would be in about another year or two, mm-hmm. maybe two years. And they've looked at the different sizes. They think it could probably fit in the back of an 18-wheeler, which is pretty good. And while they've obviously been very coy and careful about what they say, what they've said and what they put out on their website, I saw it back in 2014 when it came out, is that it somehow contains a plasma fusion reaction inside something called a magnetic bottle. Mm. And when you power it up, it's cheap to run. They can fuel it with salt water. Something about the deuterium that can split from salt or deuterium or tritium, something like mm-hmm. that. Back looks so don't quote me on that but can be powered with salt water they can run it for up to 10 years before they have to do any serious maintenance yeah but that's not the most interesting part so you guys ever read about nikola tesla yeah, yeah. probably have okay 
if you look through the old New York Times archives, there was an article put out, I think it was in early 1943, right before Tesla died. He said he was working on a revolutionary energy reactor that would contain a plasma reaction inside something called a magnetic body. Mm. Okay, sounds like this CFR device. Exactly, and here's where it gets more interesting. Read a lot of the more recent literature on Tesla and what happened when he died. The FBI has declassified a lot of their documents related to Tesla and what they did after he died. They were responding to FOIAs, you know, Freedom of Information yeah. Act requests. Yeah. And in one of the books I read on Tesla, these documents were there, official FBI memorandums. The FBI agent whose job it was to go in and grab up all of Tesla's lab work and notes, make sure the Russian NKVD didn't get it, was an FBI agent named Peter E. Fox. And when the FBI grabbed up all of his documents, the FBI and Naval Intelligence said, okay, we need to have a qualified physicist go through all of Tesla's notes, <clears throat> his research notes, results, so on and so forth, to figure out what is good, what is garbage. The name of that physicist was Dr. John Trump. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we've Trump, talked about this. Trump's uncle, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, what About yeah. what year was this again? Just so people know. That was, that was 1943. Okay. So how much of that do you think Donald Trump knows about? Honestly, have no idea. Now, yeah. it's always possible when he was young that his uncle could have taken him aside and told him about it. That is possible. But then again, his uncle may have been sworn to secrecy. And in a situation like that, where the FBI is answering to someone like J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. If Hoover said he wanted this stuff kept quiet, they go to great pains to keep it quiet. So he may have told him something, may have told him nothing. I yeah. honestly don't know. But it's a, bar- a bizarre yeah. coincidence, nonetheless. You know what I mean? You know? It's like, you're going to be the chosen one someday. You need to know. That, you <laughs> oh, know? yeah. Well, I mean, so with that said, like, obviously that kind of technology is incredible, right? If that's coming out and there's... Uh, you know, I'm not trying to get off the track here, but it's about the same thing. Like how much stuff, you know, in reason that you can actually say, like, how many more technology things are going on that we have no clue about that are just mind blowing in the government? Like that, you know, about that the average person doesn't realize that we're that advanced in. Is there a lot of stuff out there that we're advanced in that we don't realize as citizens that we're advanced in? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. All right. Now. I don't have access to all the information in spite of my clearances. My information is still pretty limited. There's a of few things I know about. A handful of technologies that are, you know, kept secret that I do know about cannot go into any detail, but sure. wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's all I care to hear you say is that, <laughs> no, I mean, I, that's yeah. the truth. It's like, we can all have, we have imaginations and we oh, can yeah. kind of assume things that are going on and, for sure. But, you know, it's like you look back and I've always thought it was interesting when you go back to the popular mechanic books and magazines back in the day and where we would be at in 2020 or 2000 and and so forth. You're like, man, we didn't really advance that much. Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of that advancement has just not been shared with the public. Well, I think the advancement has probably taken place. It's it's just like this CFR thing. It's yeah. It's been there for a while, but it's trickling out. Well, you need a new energy source. Yeah. You know, the same design uses the same fuel, right? And now that you have this cold fusion type of reactor thing. Well, let me ask you, though, how many um, 
do other countries follow suit though? Like, are they on the same page as far as like keeping up with the technology? Are they, I'm trying to do this without you obviously saying anything you can't say, but like, if we have these wow advancements, do, does Russia, China have wow advancements that we don't have? I don't think China has too many, any, any serious advancements the Chinese have, they don't have it unless they stole it from us. So if you hear about China having some wild technology. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty good chance that we already had it. Yeah. It's something they probably stole from us. Russians are kind of a different story. Um, I gotta think what I can, yeah, what I can say here, but they, they've gone off and done some pretty crazy things in the past. Some stuff, I'm not sure how successful they were. I'm going to go out and live and say they probably weren't as successful as we thought, because I'm sure they'd be using that stuff in the Ukraine if they had. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I know, like, uh, just to kind of stay on the UFO thing for a quick second, like, obviously, there's been more and more video coming out that supposedly the Navy has put out. and Sightings. Other, yeah, you know, di- different stuff that people can't explain, and it's kind of uh, triggered this new excitement about ufo possibilities and whether they're real but i've also heard you know through different podcasts these people talking about these things that we can't figure out and their concern is that it's chinese technology that it's russian technology and they have these you know hypersonic things and i'm like i mean if they have it i feel like we would have it too you know is is that the case that that those could be some kind of weird supersonic you know or is it do you really think that there's some ufos going on like legitimate so the UFO topic, the UFO phenomenon, it's very complex, nuanced, and it's kind of multi-layered. So it encompasses a lot of different things. Are some of the sightings easily explainable? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have there been some UFO sightings that were probably classified U.S. military craft? I'm sure some of them were. I don't think the majority of them were. And the reason I say that is we have large swaths of land we use as test sites. Mm-hmm. Ellis Air Force Base, China Lake, Area 51. We go to great lengths and spend a lot of money to keep that stuff secret and clandestine. Mm-hmm. Right? While we have those big test sites so that we can test this stuff without people seeing it. We go out of our way not to maneuver these things and test them over populated areas. We go out of our way not to use them around military personnel who are not properly with the appropriate, you know, special access permit. So that negates a lot of these things being U.S. military aircraft because that's just not how we do. Because if they had them, you wouldn't see them. Yeah. Now, one of the facts about the UFO topic that's been known for a long time in certain intelligence community circles is their connection with our nuclear arsenal. Okay, and the U.S. government and a lot of government officials. Luis Elizondo, uh, former Undersecretary of Defense Chris Mellon, and now a number of congressmen and senators from both sides of the aisle are acknowledging there is a connection, a clear connection between that phenomenon and our nuclear arsenal going all the way back to the late 1940s. And... Here's where that issue ties in with the prospect of nuclear warfare and nuclear weapons trafficking. Let me tie those together. So 
Russia's in a pretty bad spot right now, right? There's a lot of reasons why. One of the reasons is in 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you had a 60% drop in birth rate like that. Hmm. Okay. The Rand Corporation noticed this. We noticed it. And trying to counter nuclear weapons trafficking coming out of Russian nuclear arsenals and facilities was the primary national security concern the Clinton administration had to deal with. Okay. And so a 60% drop in birth rate, right? 60% just like that. The Russians have an opioid epidemic, an HIV epidemic, a tuberculosis epidemic still going on. Lots of Russian girls use abortion as birth control. And then when the Soviet Union collapses, millions and millions of young, beautiful Russian girls either flee Russia and the Soviet Union, or they're trafficked out by the Russian mob, or they go out as mail-order brides, right? Mm. Run the numbers on that. Run this out after three decades, and what does that do to a country? Well, it puts Russia in the position they're in now, where most likely by the end of this decade, they will not be able to maintain a military even half the size of what they got now. Oh. They're already having manpower issues because the Russians are about to go through a major population inversion, just like the Western Europeans are and just like China is for the first time in human history where you've got far more people over the age of 60 than you do people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or even late teens. Yeah. Okay? We've never seen this happen before in human history. It's probably going to be ugly. So... The Russians have it in their hands that if they're going to take Ukraine and secure their borders, they absolutely got to do it now. Because in a few years, they won't have enough young men to staff an army to do it. Mm. Now, what security problem does that present for the U.S. and the West? Okay. Nuclear weapons trafficking, and here's why. When the Russians start to finally die off as a people, probably in the 2030s, maybe 2040s, they become a big Slavic old folks home. They'll collapse. Well, if they can't have any kind of a military or security or intelligence services, how are they going to secure the tens of thousands of nuclear weapons? Mm. Okay. So that becomes a concern for us as well, right? I mean, that's the whole world, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. It becomes a massive concern because we're not just talking about small, you know, portable nukes. You're now talking about Intercontinental ballistic missile MERV warheads, lava missiles, the SS-18 say you're talking about some warheads that may have yields in the megaton range. Mm. And when the Russians finally go under, how many small countries, <clears throat> terrorist groups, are going to want to get their hands on those bloody things? Probably all of them. Oh, yeah. So that fear... And that issue that people in my line of work saw coming and knew we were going to have to deal with, as I explained in, uh, when I was being interviewed by Andy Stubb, that dynamic is one of the reasons why the intelligence community clashed sometimes and butted heads with President Trump, because President Trump and some of his more ardent supporters didn't understand that long-term security problem, how it was likely to play out. And to be fair, most Americans don't. So, but it, it's a problem for people in my line of work because, okay, how do we contain them as they go down and maybe move in and grab those nukes before someone else does? Now, 
How does that potentially tie into the UFO problem? Okay. So many senators and congressmen have acknowledged there is a national security threat from these UFOs, and it always seems to be clustered around nuclear facilities. Oddly enough, or perhaps logically enough, Roswell Army Airfield in 1947 is where our only nuclear bomber squadron was that had nukes, right? The 509th Bomb Group. Those are the guys that delivered the bomb to Hiroshima. A lot of people, a lot of people don't always make that connection. Okay. So you've got that connection. Now, when we detonate large yield nuclear weapons, can we be 100% sure that more advanced civilizations in space won't be able to detect those things. Mm. Well, I'm going to tell you guys, let me, let me break off and tell you guys an interesting story. I haven't told too many. people. Okay. So when I was working as a contractor in Afghanistan, there was a gentleman I worked with who has spent much of his career as a U.S. Army missile defense and space warfare officer. Okay. Did a lot of interesting high-speed stuff. Now, yeah. When we just, when we just, you know, shot the breeze about it. We had to do it inside of a tea skip just to, you know, make jokes about some of this stuff. So he told me an interesting story. I believe he was a young first lieutenant. He was going through a training course at White Sands, New Mexico, with a big missile, a big missile tester. And he and some other officers were talking and having a little, you know, few shots of bourbon with an older army colonel, a bird colonel, full colonel. This Army colonel had been in the business a long time, um, had worked with other government agencies, and supposedly he had been out to Area 51, though I can't confirm that. And my friend asked him, he said, Colonel, what about all that UFO alien stuff and, you know, Area 51? And he says, you know, why are the UFOs here? The colonel finishes his shot of bourbon, puts his glass down, and he said, son, let me ask you something. Imagine if you're part of a nation of explorers that explores the world's oceans as it's been doing so for centuries. You constantly run by this really primitive island. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing artillery shells, musket balls, and fireworks going off on that island. Would you want to come in and take a look and potentially be concerned? Mm. Yeah. And the colonel pushes glass aside, he just gets up and leaves. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that the reason a lot of these UFOs are happening and why they're here <laughs> is somehow connected to our nuclear arsenal going back to when we split the atom at Trinity. And again, this is now in the open source literature. A lot has been declassified. We've had Air Force intelligence officers confirm this. Now we've got undersecretaries of defense and even congressmen and senators saying they want more investigation. So potentially, besides the obvious problems of the nuclear weapons trafficking coming out of Russia when they finally die off, we may now have another concern we have to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, not of this world concern. And if you're an intelligence analyst or someone in the Department of Energy, Naval Intelligence, DIA, CIA, whatever, this now becomes a whole massive set of problems that you've got to confront and deal with. Yeah. And 
when you have some elected officials who come in who probably mean well, but don't understand this stuff, or maybe just don't want to hear about it, yeah. it creates a whole other set of problems for you. And when I was still working in U.S. Army Europe, uh, the primary problem we had where I was in the Balkans was Russian paramilitary. But this issue with Russia, a long-term issue, we're something we know we're going to have to confront when we get much older. Yeah. And the only way we can do that is to have the infrastructure in place to do so. And you notice we're moving a lot of our assets out of Germany and into Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. There's, there's other reasons why we might be moving out of Western Europe. I think Western Europe's about to be in a world of shit. Like that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I have two, two things real quick. So first of all, if if we know or think that Russia is going to collapse or possibly collapse in the next 20 years, right, 30 years, just a natural decline, we don't even have to go to war over something like this, why would we not want to do our best to be I, – I know that, that Russia is corrupt. I think most people understand that Russia, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of propaganda – I don't even trust Ukraine. I think there's a lot of corruption and a lot of propaganda. I'm not, you know, I'm, I think both sides are kind of funky and I could be wrong on that, but that's my opinion. Why would we not want to like in Trump's way where he was saying he could work with Putin, you know what I'm saying? Like he could, you know, not be friends. I'm not saying like we're, we're buddies here, but we can have a relationship enough that if we know it's going to collapse, why would we not want that? Knowing that at least we have an in at this point to where we can maybe help and alleviate some of these worries. Whereas where I feel this administration wants to come out and be like, Russia is the ultimate enemy, even though, you know, China's over here just kind of doing whatever they want. Yeah. Why is that a good strategy? Like where we are trying to push them off even farther to where when it does collapse, we're so far out of the loop. That's going to involve a fairly complicated answer. So first thing to understand is regardless of who is in charge of Russia, Whatever the one man is, with the exception of Joseph Stalin, that one man does not really run the country. It's the intelligence services that run the country. Isn't that the same with the United States, though, right? I mean, look at Biden. Biden is not, he's not controlling this whole thing. Now, it's, in our case, it's considerably more complicated. You still have Congress and the Senate that have their, you know, their hands yeah. on the purse strings. But in Russia, it's all the intelligence services, period. Okay. And even if you were to deal with Putin, you've got no real way to influence and control the activities and the behavior of the intelligence services and people who help run things, whether that's Igor Session or Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the FSB. And it, it, it is more complicated than it used to be. Get you. And one of the reasons is the Russians feel like their back is to the wall, right? And for all of Russia's history, most of their existential invasions have come from the West, you know, from Europe. So they've always wanted to be able to control Eastern Europe so they have some strategic depth. And in their minds, they have to do this. And if that's the mentality of the Russian security service and the Russian military, then some people in the U.S. intel community may say, well, look, there's nothing we can do at this point to work with them constructively. We just have to contain them and potentially bleed them to death in the Ukraine so they decide that 
coming into Eastern Europe is a bad idea because if the Russians are successful in Ukraine and maybe they want to push further into the Carpathians and the Romania like we think they might want to, that would involve a war between the U.S. and Russia that would almost assuredly go nuclear. Mm. So one school of thought is to prevent that from happening. You supply the Ukrainians with advisors, training, weapons like the Javelin, which is actually one of my TO weapons when I was in the Marine Corps. You supply with what they need to just bleed the Russians to death so you can stop the Red Army in Ukraine. Now, here's the problem. Regardless of whether we are successful at stopping the Russians in the Ukraine, their intelligence services might have already won a strategic victory against Western Europe and NATO. <clears throat> Here's why. So Ukraine is one of the world's big bread baskets, right? One of the top exporters of wheat, grain, fertilizer products. And countries all over Africa, the Middle East, even China to a lesser extent, are heavily dependent on those wheat, grain, and fertilizer. Hmm. Okay? You look at what the Russians have done, where they have been successful. They've been successful at wrecking Ukraine's agriculture. They're using too much firepower to do that to make me think it's an accident. Hmm. Russian artillery officers are actually pretty well trained. They are not that bad of shots. They're doing that on purpose. They've been pretty successful at knocking out, destroying, and occupying their port cities and shutting down their export and import terminals. Now, why security services want to do all this? Because if they sever the flow of wheat, grain, and fertilizer exports to Africa and parts of the Middle East, it causes mass starvation and mass famine. That mass famine will lead to massive civil wars and societal collapse. That will push tens of millions of Arab Muslim and African migrants straight into the heart of Western Europe, Spain, France, Italy, and Germany. Mm. Right? Now, aside from the obvious chaos that that's going to cause, okay, civil war, insurgency on their own soil, massive financial strain, medical system strain, okay, devastating for Europe. From a military standpoint, it makes sense. If I think you are a threat to me, I can stir up problems It'll cause, say, a bunch of bandits to come into your pasture or your barn. Works out good for me, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense when you stop and think about it. And let me assure you, the Russian intel services know exactly what they're doing in this regard. But here's something else no one thinks about. And this is a major problem we wrestled with in U.S. Army Europe. So the last time we had a mass migrant flow come into Europe in 2015, we saw a lot of the right-wing parties in Europe start rising to power. AFD in Germany, whoever the populists are in Italy might be the five-star movement, and the National Front in France. Okay, So even if those migrant flows don't destroy those countries, if the right-wing parties do come to power and they get it under control, and they'll probably do that by turning those guys and those people into air pollution like they usually do. Mm. They get control. AFD Germany, National Front in France, a lot of their members are pro-Putin and pro-Russian. And we do <coughs> not know how many of them might be Russian assets. We have no idea. Mm. We suspect it. So 
for us as the guys that really make NATO work, what does that do for us if the parliaments in those countries are now full of Russian sympathizers or potential Russian assets? Yeah. Well, I have a question for you real quick, man. Um, so you, you, what you're saying is that the military understands that a, 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 a insurgent of people going into other countries because of famine or other such things is a bad thing. You're, you say that that's a basic understanding. We, we understand that unless something changes, that's probably what's going to happen. And when it does, we know we're in trouble, but we haven't actually figured out what we're going to do about it. That might be one of the reasons we're moving more of our material into Scandinavia and Eastern. Well, I'm asking just because why in the hell would our, our president want open borders then? Like, why would they allow this insurgence of people to come through the Mexican border where we have no way to identify who these people are? You're talking about these counter, like, double agents, right? You know, we don't know who the hell's coming through Mexico just on a, on a, on a semi-truck coming into the country, and we're allowing people to just be disper- dispersed all the way through the country. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that's an issue in European countries that all of a sudden you get an influx of people that are kind of messing with the governments and getting yeah. involved with the governments. So that's the same thing that's been happening here. So why is that like taboo to say that we need to have closed borders? So the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the DOD, we, we, we understand all this. Um, but most of our responsibilities for a lot of good reasons are focused overseas, right? Um, it sometimes gets in the territory of not wanting to deploy the regular active U.S. military to secure the border. Congress just always seems to be really hesitant to do that. And so now why some people see things differently? Well, it could be a number of reasons. Uh, for the longest time behind the scenes, it was always, even though the Republicans talked a lot about border security, sometimes the business community wanted the cheap labor. I know that was a big impetus behind it. But as bad as some of these things can be, uh, you know, migrants coming in from Central America and Mexico, as bad as it may seem, they're still Catholics. They're still mm-hmm. part of Western civilization, yep. you know. 100 times better than what's probably going to happen in Europe. And we do still have a, a number of decent security measures across the border. We do actually stop most of what comes in. Doesn't mean stuff doesn't get through and that there aren't issues there. But in the long run, it might be something we can fix economically. Let me, let, let me explain why. So the United States, as you know, We've been fully energy independent since 2019. We've got the cheapest oil and gas on the planet thanks to the shale oil revolution. And in fact, when we frack for oil, this only happens in the United States because we have fairly unique geology. When we frack for oil, we produce massive amounts of natural gas as a waste product. I mean, you just don't get much cheaper than that. Yeah. And so one school of thought is, in some branches of the government is, If we work this right with Mexico, because they have a large, young population that is actually well-skilled in the trades, for decades they ran a good trade school program, a lot of American businessmen that are leaving China in droves for a lot of good reasons, 
how many of them set up shop in Mexico. Like it still be within the new NAFTA system that the Trump administration or Robert Lighthizer, his federal trade representative, uh, renegotiated. So what we could do, we could set up pipelines, pump all that cheap gas and that cheap natural gas into Mexico, power all their factories, help them produce jobs for those young people. That'll eventually take care of the migration problem because they won't have, they won't feel the need to come north. They'll have a good job right there. And we can get those low-end manufactured goods still for relatively cheap that we used to get from China. Both countries come out better. It helps stabilize Mexico because we don't want them collapsing. That could be a nightmare. Then we might actually have to deploy the U.S. military and force mm-hmm. if that were to happen. Yeah. So we kind of want to, there's a school of thought that, hey, we want to kind of balance this right so that we can solve this long term without having to deploy the military and save us, basically save us a lot of trouble. And Peter Zihon, the geopolitical analyst, would be someone you guys might want to have on to ask about that. He could probably explain it better than I can. No, so yeah. Be- that route is in <clears throat> school of thought. They're just kind of trying to be as patient as possible. That's, that's just that's one school of thought, maybe yeah. one reason why. Well, I mean, gotcha. we, we have about 10, 12 minutes we, we can keep going with here. But I, I have a question, like as far as the, you know, what you can say with the military. And I don't agree if you have any more questions, too. But uh, the military, like what kind of difference have you seen or heard from your fellow friends and stuff who are in the field? Trump's administration to Biden's administration. What's the school of thought in general of like where people think we are and what we're doing? You know, how 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 is everybody liking this? Because <laughs> I feel like it's from my end, it looks like the Biden administration is kind of not doing a great job. You know, that's my take. And so does the military see that as well? Or do they even they not even respond to that kind of stuff? It I haven't talked much with a lot of my buddies. I haven't I haven't been in touch with them for a long time. Um, not a whole lot has really changed. Uh the withdrawal from Afghanistan was obviously a, a catastrophe. And the the way that withdrawal was conducted, uh, in my opinion, the incompetence of that on the part of our policymakers, senior leaders, and even some of our flag officers goes way past being criminal. Uh, the incompetent way it was conducted doesn't really give me a warm fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But as far as what things are changing in the military, we're, we're still pulling back a lot of our troops from overseas and we're still decreasing our footprints. Biden hasn't really surprisingly hasn't really changed that. And he, he hasn't taken the tariffs off of China that Trump put in place. Surprise. Okay. Uh, Catherine Ty, the woman he made federal trade representative has not, has not changed. Him yet. A lot of that stuff is still in place mm. and it's still hammering the Chinese. And that's why when I, what, one of my books that I wrote, uh, it's a fictional book called The Time Killers. Uh, it's about the aftermath of a future war between the U.S. and China. And it describes how, you know, how it describes how we can hurt China without just using terrorists. You know, China gets, you know, a humongous amount of its oil and gas and energy from the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. But most of the vessels in their navy, as Peter Zihon points out in his lecture, they can't sail more than a thousand miles. So hmm. In my book, I wrote, when the war starts before the aftermath gets bad, and we cut that off, and you basically cut China's carotid artery, and then they're in deep. Damn. Damn. It well, really so, is that simple. 
So not speaking, easy, but simple. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of your books, um, before we get out of here, do you want to promote anything? I mean, I know that you're an author. I think you have two books. You're working on your third, you said? Well, I've written a total of six, but if y'all don't mind me just taking a couple minutes to talk about it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Please do. Okay. So, first book I ever wrote, this sucker. Holy mackerel. Okay. It's That's got a sexy called, cover right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called <laughs> In the Death of Night 2.0. And what it's about, it's about a retired CIA case officer named Bill Carpenter who manipulates and leverages a Russian mafia syndicate in Houston in a slaughtering and killing Islamic terrorists. And these are fictional books, right? Yes, sir. Fictional. Okay, cool. Now, the, the way it works is in the, in, the, in the Death of Night 2.0, Bill Carpenter runs his own, he's a former CIA case officer, paramilitary division, all that, runs his own private security firm called Mercury Securities inside Houston. And he has a contract to do what we call technical surveillance countermeasures work for the FBI, Houston Police, Harris County Sheriff, Immigration Customs, ATF, all those guys. Basically, bug sweep. Mm-hmm. Well, his guys are sweeping for bugs, and they plant the bugs they're trying to find. Aha! Uh-huh. They know everything law enforcement at all levels in the Houston area is doing. So he goes to the deputy head of a Russian organized crime group whose former KGB named Mikhail Vladimirov, and he says, Mikhail, here's the deal. I can make an offer you can't refuse. I'm going to tell you if, when, how, why, and where the cops and the feds are going to move on you way in advance on one condition. I have all this surveillance data on known or suspected Islamic terrorists and spies from Al-Qaeda, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, whatnot, that have moved into Houston to target our oil and gas refining infrastructure in the event of a war. He says, all I want you to do is have your ex-GRU, ex-Stasi, ex-Spetsnaz hitmen kill these guys and butcher them like hogs. I want it nasty and violent. Dango. And for any U.S. persons we have to kill, I'll give you some money. You wash it through your laundering rackets, and you hire, say, ex-South African mercenaries whose files won't be available to law enforcement at the federal level and make their deaths look accidental, so on and so forth. Heart attacks, car wrecks, all that. A lot of that happens. Normal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And uh, as it goes through, he tells McCall, whatever it costs you to have your hitmen kill the first batch of guys, I'll spot you for in cold, hard cash. But since the Houston police just raided a bunch of your prostitution rackets and brothels, if you turn this offer down and you get hit again by the police or the FBI, your boss in Moscow, Victor Shervashenko, is going to hack you up with a chainsaw and a bathtub, so on and so forth. So what do you say? Hmm, pleasant. I like this so, book. Yeah. <laughs> that's, oh yeah, that's, that's the first one. Then the next book I wrote is called The Jackals of Babylon 2020. Ooh. I got to say, great covers, by the way. Yeah. And yeah. That, Super clean. So that's a short story collection about mercenaries and assassins flying their trade on American soil. And for your viewers, in, uh, in, in The Death of Night 2.0, there's a scene where a couple of mercenaries take a terror cell member beat him up in a parking lot, freeze his head with liquid nitrogen, and then shatter his head like glass with a nightstick. Based off of real technology, right? Like what we really do? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) The the next book that I wrote was a short novel called The Time Killers. Mm Mm-hmm. Sucker. Yes. So that's about the aftermath of a devastating war between the U.S. and China kicks off in 2025. We win by cutting off China's oil and gas coming out of the Persian Gulf, by cutting off the Straits of Malacca, 
They release a virus, kills millions of people. It's real bad. Oh. And a group of a group of soldiers and scientists in Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico, are working on some black programs. They've got a UFO. They're reverse engineering with a live alien, and they figure out how to go back in time. Oh shit! So they send operational support specialists back in time, the late night. Seven to set up maintenance companies, LLCs, front companies, and start recruiting what we call support assets to support things like assassination, buy, disposal, all that. And then in 1990, they meet the five soldiers who are going to come back because they're coming back to kill four people who, in the aftermath of the war between the U.S. and China, there's a counterintelligence investigation done, and they figure out that four people are responsible, two American and two Chinese. The only time they're all together in the same spot was in Houston, Texas in 1990. Now, there's another dimension to the time killers. These soldiers and intel operatives are all generation extras like I am. They're going back to the late 80s, early 90s, and experiencing that awesome period of music, fashion, culture, music, and living color, all that from their childhoods. And it's kind of like a, a different version of Stranger Things. Mm, okay. So, they're going back to that late 80s, early 90s time period. You re-experience the music, you know, the fashions. Terrible cars, though. Things work. <laughs> Just being real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And, in fact, the first part of the book when the time travelers have first gone back, 1987, they're taking a day off. They're at an actual music concert at Charlie's Paradise Bar in South Padre in spring break, 1988. They're at an actual expose concert. You can pull it up on YouTube. And they're kind of reminiscing about their childhoods as they're setting up a network to support these four, five, excuse me, these five assassins that are coming back to kill these four targets. And it's also an erotic thriller. There's also some really intense graphic sex scenes some people might like. Oh, excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, my wife might dig that. Yeah. Oh, hey, you know, she likes those love girl. books, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this, this, this is it's not too romantic. I well. <laughs> a girl, a girl, but a girl who becomes central to the ending of the book is a tall girl named Christina Blackwood. There's a twist ending at the end that you don't see coming that potentially sets it up for a sequel where you try to figure out why did Christina behave the way she did in September 9th, 2001. Something happens between, you know, that time frame and 1990. There'll be a sequel. Hmm, nice. It's uh, got something for everybody. So do, yeah. you, do you sell these only, like, on a website, or can you get these at, like, normal bookstores? Like, where's the best oh. way to get your books? Oh, the, the best way is just pull them up on Amazon. I have an author page on Amazon you can pull up. Nice. Awesome, man. The other three books that I wrote and published were called the Westheimer's Children Series in relation to the Westheimer Corridor in Houston. Where I used to work as a doorman. The uh, the latest book that's available is called The Pimp Daddy's Artifact. Okay. Wait, The Pimp Daddy's Artifact? Yes. Oh, based, okay. All righty. It's, it's based on a real life uh, firearm owned by an infamous Houston pimp named Tommy Tish. Uh, he was kind of made famous in Houston by a retired homicide detective named Brian Foster, who wrote a series of books called The Homicidal Humor Series. All true hmm. stories, by the way. Awesome. Excellent. And in that book, there's a pimp named Tommy Tish. In the 1980s, he had a Colt 45 that had all these silver engravings of naked women all over it. And if you look at the barrel of the pistol, looking at it from the front, he had the words engraved above the barrel that said, Welcome to hell. Ooh. 
Mm. And Brian Foster wrote about him in his second homicidal humor book. Well, in my book, it's a pimp named Bobby Barboza, and it's a shotgun instead of a pistol. Okay. And he's killed in the early 90s by a former jarhead named Scott Rains, who narrates three of the stories in Jackals of Babylon, by the way. And his infamous shotgun resurfaces. And then in the span of one night, every trigger-happy redneck, every street thug, every gang member, every mercenary in that area of Houston is trying to find this gun. Gotcha. It's like the Holy Grail. Yeah. It's almost like the Book of Eli, can yeah, I? Didn't, I didn't realize that you you wrote these fiction uh, books. I mean, that's it is, that's like awesome, right up dude. my alley, man. I like it. Oh, I yeah. guarantee you throw a little bit of your knowledge in there somewhere secretly, you know? Well, there's... If if you read the time killers, you'll get a you'll get. I had to get the time killers approved by the Pentagon. <laughs> oh God, nice! Oh, yeah. yeah, so that makes me I want to read it for sure. It blew it blew my mind that they approved it because I went into a lot of detail into certain types of tradecraft, how we set up support networks to say support you know our operators overseas. I give you I give you a good window into how that's actually done and what goes on behind the scenes when we pull off some of these operations. Hmm. A lot. That's awesome. More incentive to go buy it, everybody. Well, yeah, Matt, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, get the books on Amazon, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and I uh, honestly, man, we we even pushed this out a half an hour more than we normally do because you're, what you're saying is so interesting. I'd love to have you back on at some point and kind of yeah. keep going. Uh, one last question I have before we sure. let you bounce, man. Heart attack guns, are they real? Heart attack guns? Yeah, I want to know. You can't say it, can that you? That actually... That actually falls under something I can't discuss. Okay. <laughs> okay. All I need to know, bro. Thank done you. and done. <laughs> Dude, well, you've, yeah. been, you've been awesome, man. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge. And uh, and if you know any other guests, I know you know a lot of people in the community yeah. that you think would be interesting for us. Please just shoot us an email. Love to have those people right. on as well. Yeah, I, I would highly suggest you guys try to get Peter Zihon on, especially give him a talk about you. All right. Okay. Man. Well, yeah. we appreciate thank it, you. man. Uh, thank you. And uh, hopefully we get to chat with you real soon. Yeah, keep in touch. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, guys. It was my pleasure. All guys, right. yeah, really go check out his books, man. They look awesome. All right. Thanks again, Matt. Take care, Matt. No problem. All right. Yeah. Dude, so, that's great stuff, man. Good stuff. It's great you know, stuff. It's just it's good getting the uh the conversation on all sides of the aisle. You know what I mean? Just like we we've never gone to war. We've never been in the military intelligence immunity so yeah i think it's it's good because um like well like you said you know we have our opinions and that's yeah. what the show's based off is our, our opinions and it's good to take another side yeah. and, and hear what's you know going through uh you know we didn't get with into the ukraine stuff as much and to be fair like i was telling at, at the hour mark i'm like keep, keep going, going like keep i don't want to yeah. stop right now um he's a guy that you definitely want to like talk with more you know and he can share as much as he can but it, it, to you know to preface this is always is one side, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously more and I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of other details and a lot of other opinions in there, but absolutely. I think what he's offering is, is, is a good insight about how things work. And it does arise or bring up some questions that I have, you know, that one military question or the uh, open borders thing was something that as soon as he said, I was like, wait a second, like what the, yeah. if you understand that in, you know, like these, people leaving countries and, and kind of going into other countries insurgents insurgents or you know when we say like well, there's another word i got brain fart now if they recognize that that can be problematic then what yeah. are we doing as a country allowing Absolutely. them to come in we have to say yeah. well we need to help them we only, we need to take fifty thousand in you know yeah i know that there's uh members of border or border patrol um homeland security we could sure. definitely talk to might have a little bit more firsthand 
You know, I love the uh, heart attack gun though. It's just as soon as oh, I, yeah. I, in my head, and I've thought about that for a minute. I was like, yeah, he's not going to answer this. I know he can't, but I'm just going to look for the the immediate reaction. Yeah. And it was like, well, you I'm know like, how? Oh, there it is, buddy. He had to get time killers. <laughs> he had to get time killers approved by the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah. I think that's because time travel is real. Okay, everybody. Uh, I think he's disclosing time travel. Maybe. Yep. Dude, I, I love it. So. Yeah, so, I love it. I really yes. appreciate his conversation and uh, appreciate you guys hanging out for freaking hour and a half, man. Hell yes. Um, yeah. It's good times, everybody. On to the next. Hopefully, you get a chat with him again. For show. Hold up that drink, bro. Raise your glasses. Love you guys. Check out parmaamerican.com. And go check out his books, man. Go to Amazon. Check those yes. books out. They all sound very, very interesting. Yeah, they all have sex on the cover. I love if it. If you like fucking <laughs> and uh, torture, let's do it. Yeah, there we go. All right, everybody. Until next time. Sa'o-nara. Later. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.